If you think about the role of randomness in the world, there's so much that's not within your control. One thing within your control is the quality of your output. Amen. You should have a simple goal to put out a product which is the highest quality you can. And if you have done that, you can relax. How do you take complicated ideas and make them so simple that people are begging to give you their money? Our guest today, Howard Marks, is a master at that, a master at clarity and distillation. He's been writing memos for the last three and a half decades. In 1990, he had basically no readers, and now he has more than 300,000 people, and he now manages more than $190 billion in assets. So how does he do it? How does he write so clearly, so concisely? What does he do to distill ideas and make them simple? Well, that's the topic of this conversation with Howard Marks. Hey, Howard. Hey, David. How you doing? Thanks for doing this. Good to be here. So the first place I want to begin is you have a line in the introduction to your first book where you say, heaven for me would be seven little words. I never thought of it that way. Why that? Well, if I'm writing a book and it squares with people's expectations and agrees with what they already know, then I'm not contributing much, am I? And of course, you know, the human brain has a strong confirmation bias. It wants to hear support for what it already believes, but doesn't really accomplish much. So if, 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 a, if I get a reader who says, you know, I never thought of it that way, then that means I've, I've told them something they didn't know. Right. And I've made them think about and maybe question the things they already thought they knew. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that, that's a positive step. There's such a simplicity in your writing that I think makes it stand out. I get a lot of response nowadays. Uh, my favorite one, well, there's two. One says, you changed my life because I, you know, I now think this or that way. And the other one is, uh, you make complex things simple. Yeah. Uh, the, the most flattering one I ever got, I'm not sure about the uh, comparison, uh, said that Einstein said, there are four levels of intelligence. There's bright, brilliant, genius, simple. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, the person wrote me, uh, the, the, imp the inference is that my writing is simple. And, and that makes me very happy. I've had, a, uh, I've been doing a lot of visits and speaking this week, and I had two occasions when people said, when you hear Howard, you'll hear that he makes sophisticated concepts clear. And that makes me very happy. Um, I've been thinking about why, uh, or how, and my conclusion is that, you know, my brain operates uh, uh, largely on the left side, mm -hmm. literal, logical. But I think being a logical person lets you break down a process in an orderly fashion mm -hmm. that you can then explain to people. Obviously, the output is very simple. How do the ideas get into that simple, orderly shape? First of all, I have the great advantage that I don't have uh, a requirement to write. Right. You know, I, I know people who write every day. I don't, can't imagine how you do that, or who require themselves to write every week or every month. Uh, I don't require any regularity of myself. I write when I feel like it. Now, having said that, I try to write no less than quarterly, and I put in one of my memos uh, that uh, uh, if I don't write for three months, I tend to get emails saying, are you dead? <laughs> uh, but 
other than that, there is no regularity. And uh, so I don't feel any pressure. I write when I have an idea. And uh, usually it's a, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a matter of gleaning. And, and I, think, I think a lot of it is serendipity. You come across this, then you come across this. Now, the way my mind works, I make connections. So I, I tend to make connections among uh, ostensibly unconnected things, which, which produce uh, inspirations. So I, I, I might read an article here and cut it out, then an article from another source on a somewhat different topic that I think is connected and put it on a pile, and then an article from here and a video from here and a, that thought from here, which I write down and put it on the pile. And when the pile is substantial in terms of uh, content, not, not height, uh, you know, I might write a memo. Well, I think a good example of this is how you wrote your Getting Lucky memo, right? There was a confluence of ideas that all came together. You saw that tweet and you said, hey, now I got to write about this piece. Exactly, exactly, yeah. You know, uh, uh, I believe in luck. I believe, well, uh, uh, maybe a more erudite way to say that is I believe in randomness. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I believe I've been incredibly lucky in my life. I can't believe it. And so I was in my hotel room in Riyadh and I picked up the uh, Four Seasons magazine and there was an article uh, on luck and it, it, it led off with a quote from Jack Dorsey from Twitter and he said uh, something like, success is never accidental, you make your own luck. Hmm. So that caused me to write the memo and I wrote, I couldn't disagree more. Uh, there are happy accidents. There are unhappy accidents. Now, you know, people say luck happens when preparation meets opportunity. My point is that sometimes preparation does not meet opportunity. That person is unlucky. And, you know, most of us know people who are able, well-intentioned, hardworking, and don't get lucky. Many of us know people who are none of those things, but got lucky. Opportunity, if, you, if that's a word you want to use, or luck, is not evenly distributed. Yeah. So help me as an outsider, I'm going to totally straw man this, but I think it'll lead to an interesting answer. Why in the world would you give away your investing secrets in the form of clear memos? Why would you consider doing that? That's your edge. Well, I really believe that I can tell people what's important but most of them are still not going to be able to do it. <laughs> so I'm not putting myself at risk mm. uh, because some people are going to say, well, that's what he says. I, I'm not into that. Some people will say I'm into it, but they won't be able to do it. Uh, and and uh, my, uh, the, the secret to success in these areas is not knowing these concepts, but it's being able to implement them. And a lot of people who say, yeah, that's good. I'm going to try to do that. They're just not going to get there. So the benefits of writing, in my opinion, in this case, outweigh that risk. Uh, I'm not giving that much away. And I get so much out of it. You know, uh, people say, well, wh when do you write? I said, well, if you look at the record of the last 35 years, you'll see there's invariably a memo in September and one in January. What does that mean? 
That means I wrote over the summer and I wrote over Christmas. It's my recreation. You know, I, I, it's one of the things I like to do the most and I find it relaxing. Since I'm not under the pressure to, to publish, it's relaxing to do it and it's creative to do it. And I believe that it's desirable to have a creative outlet. That's mine. So tell me about that summer incubation period. How does a memo come together? Do you write things down, draw things out? Do you just sort of work through paragraphs to start with an outline, move towards prose? What does that process look like for you? I, I, really, I really start with a pile of scraps of paper. I don't usually, I mean, I have a list of topics, a list of thoughts. I don't have what you would call an, uh, an outline, you know, Roman one, this, A, B, C, Roman two, blah, blah, blah. I just have, a, just have a bunch of ideas. They start off on piles of paper, they come up here, and usually what happens is I think about it for a long time. And then having thought about it and come to some more ideas about organization, I just write them down. Do you do a lot of editing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love the editing part, you know. Uh, you do a you you do a rapid first draft. You think it's good, then you read it. Then you read it over again, and you make changes. You move a couple of paragraphs around. You connect a couple sentences with a connector, um, and uh, you know I might do that uh, about five times. Let's say each time it gets a little better. But we have something called the law of diminishing returns. I mean, it means the first time you do it, you make it 20% better. The second time you do it, you make it 10% better than that. And the second, third time, five, and two, and then one, and then you can't really make it any better. But the word I use for that process is polishing. And, and uh, hopefully it's a good thing that you enjoy having written and you enjoy writing it, but then you enjoy making it better. And you, you, know, you take two sentences and you reverse them and you, that's much better. And you, that's a, so it's a source of satisfaction. When I get it to the point where I think it's, you know, as good as I can make it, then I have a few people I show it to. Mm -hmm. One of whom, you know, I have one person who finds six things wrong, one person who has four things wrong, one finds 10 things wrong, and I have one person who finds 200 nits. You know, like I used a long hyphen when I should have used a short hyphen. I put... I, my commas are this kind of commas where they should have been that kind of commas. And so uh, now what I do is I let him read it first and he makes his 200 changes and I incorporate it and the rest is, is, is uh, clearer sailing. Uh, but, you know, uh, William Sapphire, who used to uh, write a column in the Sunday's New York Times Magazine section called On Language. <laughs> so he used to have uh, an expression. He said, I... I I ran it by my irregulars. Now, an irregulars, I believe, was a term for a ragtag army, uh, <laughs> you know, out of uniform, you know, what we might call guerrillas today. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, and I'm talking about 250 years ago. Uh, so he said he had his irregulars who were his ragtag bunch of readers who gave him comments. And, and, and so these, these uh, uh, four or five people are my support group and they we you know obviously the goal is to get it from a b to an a and then from an a to an a plus what you're so good at is the distillation the ability to explain things in one paragraph yeah. and one phrase 
So does it begin with the one phrase or does it end with the one phrase? I, I, I find it hard to generalize. I just have this idea. And I, I, as I say, I think I think clearly. And then the, if that's true, then the goal is merely to get the thought onto the page, you know? And uh, of course, that's the hard part for most people. I don't find it that hard. Uh, it, it's, it just takes a little time. You got to work at it. Uh, but I don't find it highly challenging. Uh, and and, and uh, I think that having the phrases which clarify and simplify are integral to the process. So maybe the answer is I don't write much uh, until I have the phrases. One of the uh, most important things that I point out to people about my writing is that it is essentially my goal to write the way I speak. I don't want to do any different. You know, my speaking hopefully is clear, hopefully my writing is clear, and hopefully it's the same. So I use contractions. I, I, I use co hopefully common language. Mm -hmm. I can think of authors who, who seem to have the goal, uh, I can think of one in particular, who seems to have the goal that I'm going to say things that my reader doesn't understand. Sure. And I'm going to show them how smart I am and how erudite. My goal is not to do that. I don't want to create a barrier or a di level difference between uh, myself and my writers. My goal is to say, uh, I'm a person, you're a person, we're both people. I know about some stuff you don't know about. I'm, I'd like to share it with you. You see this all the time in financial writing. I mean, my average time looking at some random white papers, maybe a second and a half, because I just scroll and I get out of it. And your writing has that simplicity. So if you've been successful doing that, if Buffett's been successful doing that, why does the industry still operate in these landmines of jargon? I think it was Mark Twain who's defined a profession as a conspiracy against the laity. <laughs> a lot of professions have a jargon which certain professionals maybe want to say insecure professionals want to stay with that jargon to uh, uh, reinforce the barrier between themselves and the common man who is not a member of the profession. Uh, I'm not interested in that. I'd rather, I'd rather uh, tell a story that people find interesting and accessible. Um, and, uh, and, and as I say, that's why. My goal is to have a written product that reads like speech. How in the world did you stick with it for so many years when no one was reading your stuff? You've yeah. mentioned that, hey, I just really enjoyed this, yeah. but you're literally licking the envelope on memos in 1990, 1991. Yeah. Yeah. No one's reading it. Yeah, well, of course. Now, remember that that was pre-internet. So what you would do in those days, and, and it was largely pre-computer, so you would write it out, run it off on the Xerox machine, fold it, <laughs> stick it in an envelope, address the envelopes. And in those days, uh, I started in, I guess, October of 90. You, they only went to my clients, and maybe there were 100. So it was laborious. And I always say that it's as if I wrote it out, ran it off, folded it up, put it in the envelope, addressed it, put a stamp on it, and threw them in the sewer. <laughs> because, because I never heard back. 
but I did it for fun. I did it because I enjoyed it. I, I, did, I wrote the first one because I thought I had an interesting story to tell that I wanted to share. By the way, I never said, if I write them, I'm going to get more business, you know, or make more money uh, or anything like that. Uh, but then, of course, uh, in 95, we started Oak Tree, and, and so I had my own firm. That's when we started to distribute it electronically in addition to in writing. And I, I'll never forget the time in the late 90s when I put out a memo and within an hour or two, I had a, a response back from somebody in Russia. Oh, that must have been exciting. It was. I, I didn't know anybody in Russia. I didn't send it to anybody in Russia, but it, it got passed around. I always say like Playboy magazine when we were in camp. And, <laughs> and, and so I heard, and so then I said, oh, that's what they call going viral. And that was, that was cool. So, um, you know, from probably 100 or so in 1990, I think now we're up to 300,000 subscribers and hopefully they pass it around. And, and uh, so it, it's, it's a lot of fun now and I get great responses and I enjoy it. And uh, it's just, it's just a pleasure. And how did you get into this? You would mention like college, that's when it really yeah. begins, huh? You know, I went to Warden. Um, I went to public high school in New York. One day, one of my buddies said, hey, they're giving you a course in accounting. We should take that. So I took that course and I loved it. And that made me decide to be an accountant, which is what my dad was. And uh, to apply to Wharton, which previously I didn't know what, what existed. My, and and uh, uh, I was lucky I got into Wharton. Uh, my guidance counselor said I wouldn't. My grades were indifferent. Uh, but, but luckily I got in. And, and that changed my life, obviously. Now, when I got to Wharton, Wharton had two requirements that I would describe as enlightened. Yeah. You had to have one semester of the literature of a foreign country in English, and you had to have a non-business minor. Okay. Now, the geeks, for their non-business minor, took econ or stat or poli-sci. But for my language literature, I took Japanese. No idea why, except that I think the exoticism appealed to me. I loved it so much that I took five courses at the graduate level in Japanese studies, and I made it my non-business minor. And what distinguishes Japanese literature as you think about it? How is it different? It's highly stylized, and the imagery is highly, uh, highly descriptive, but also very elegant. Uh, Everything that Japanese have done uh, has always been elegant in its word choice, in its imagery, etc. And, uh, and, and importantly, uh, the five courses I took, four were taught by the same professor, a guy named E. Dale Saunders. Uh, and he was like an estate. He was like an Oxford Don. He was a, a very demanding of writing. And by the way, uh, remember that as a, as a Wharton freshman or a sophomore, you're taking econ courses with 200 students in an auditorium. These graduate level courses in Japanese studies were eight people in a, in a, at a table or, uh, in a room. And so you would send them in a paper and he would get, send it back. And in the margin, in this really picky little writing in the margin, he would say, uh, WW wrong word, or um, REP, repetitive. 
or R-E-D, redundant. Uh, and if you wrote something good, he would write A-H-H, ah. <laughs> and if you got an ah, you, you really that felt rewarded. So uh, I would say that uh, Professor Saunders really, uh, first of all, these courses turned me, I, was seven, I had just turned 17 when I went off to college. I was just a kid. Boys develop slowly anyway. And, and, and these courses turned me from an indifferent student into a serious student. Uh, and it's the first time other than my accounting course that I was excited about what I was learning. And, uh, but, but he really helped me to raise my writing. And uh, that was 1965. And the first memo came out in 1990. So it took me a while to do anything. But, you know, I always, even, and, and when I went to work uh, in the business in 69, from then till 90, I always tried to turn out a well-written product, but it wasn't a standalone product in its own right. And let me, as a segue, just point out that when my son uh, was preparing uh, to come into the business, and when I speak to other people who want to go into business or, bi or careers in general, one of the things I say to them, which I think is important, is that if you think about the role of randomness in the world, there's so much that's not within your control. You try to be an investor or an entrepreneur or a, uh, a podcast uh, creator. There's a lot that's not in your control. One thing that's within your control is the quality of your output. Amen. And so you should have a simple goal, which is to put out a product which is the highest quality you can. And if you have done that, by definition, it's the best you can do. You can't do better than the best you can do. But if you've done that, you can relax. And, and uh, so I, I, I really think that there's... And, and the other thing I told my son uh, when he went off to college in 05 was that with internet and emojis and you are a great person, you know, everybody else is dumbing it down. If you maintain a high standard, when they dumb it down, you'll shine. You'll be distinguished. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I think this is, a, writing is a, a better way than ever to distinguish yourself for the better. So if I'm, I've just raised half a million or half a billion dollars and I'm now running a fund and I want to write memos or an annual letter and I come to you and I say, Mr. Marks, I would like to adopt the strategy that you adopted and I'm all in on quality. What parameters should I be thinking about as I write them? What makes a good memo or annual letter? What I would say is I, I, I appreciate your interest in writing memos. Let's hope you're a good writer, but don't waste your time until you have something to say. So a guy who's a year out of grad school or three years or X years has nothing to say other than to discuss his or her level of ignorance. And that might be endearing, or it might signal uh, that he or she is on some quest. But you don't have wisdom to impart. You know, what I'm trying to do, remember I started in 1990, I'd already been working 21 years, 
and hopefully I had something to say. So before that, I would say don't waste your time. Write for practice, write to communicate with your clients, but don't expect anybody to read your memo for sage advice when you're 28. And then once I am ready, I've been working the business for 20, 30, 40 years. What do I, what should I focus on? Well, what I would say is uh, think hard before you start about your point of view. You, what do you believe in? What is your, uh, the, the word I use is creed. What is your investment philosophy? What do you believe in? What you think will work? What will not work? What will you do? What will you refuse to do? Uh, what are the rules or principles uh, that govern your activity? And try to speak from a principle-based voice. Huh. You know, so many people say, well, you know, uh, this happened yesterday in Washington and this happened in New York and this is what the Fed said and this is what I think is going to happen tomorrow and this is what will happen, I think, will happen on Thursday. That stuff is unimportant and unlikely to make for a, a, a very good uh, uh, output. Try to think of something significant, lasting principles, important lessons uh, uh, morals, if you will, up to the story. Most of the people who write every day uh, talk about what happened yesterday and what they think is going to happen tomorrow. And if, if they ever kept a scorecard on the things that they wrote about what's going to happen tomorrow, they would see that on average they get it right half the time, mm -hmm. which is not very helpful. Uh, uh, these are fleeting and these are... Uh, insubstantial. So I would say uh, try to th think of things that have substance. I like how you phrase it. You say forming a life philosophy has four parts. Many ideas from a variety of sources formed over a long period of time that you distill into life lessons. Hmm. So you have to be in e eclectic in your subject matter and eclectic in your uh, sources so that you can uh, be interesting and uh, have some variety. We have an investment philosophy, I have a philosophy, which is highly formed. When you, the day you step out of school and you start work, you don't have an investment philosophy. You may have some ideas from your uh, school, but you have no reason to believe uh, which ones work or that any of them will work. And you haven't, you know, you, ha you have the, some of the things you learned in school, you should consider and reject you know, and, and uh, you should figure out, uh, you know, uh, what's real and what's just theory. Um, Yogi Berra said, uh, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. <laughs> and, and so, you know, just a regurgitation of what you learned in school doesn't do you any good. Uh, you say, I, I was told this and it really works and I was told this and I think that's hooey. That's when you, you get uh, valuable observations that you can turn into a written product which is valuable to somebody else. I like how you say eyes wide open, that sense of awareness. Yes. One of the reasons that I got into Wharton when the, the odds were against was that I had, had I, uh, SATs. And one of the things I did best in the SATs was the section called analogies. I've always been good at analogies and I see connections. And, uh, uh, you know, I see connections. Uh, every decade I've, wrote, I've written a memo 
about the connections between sports and investing. And in most uh, decades, one about the connection between gambling and investing. And just writing a memo about investing, not too interesting, a memo about the connection between poker and, uh, or backgammon and investing, I think can be quite uh, 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 interesting. So if you go through life, as I naturally do, seeing a lot of things in natural intellectual curiosity and thinking how they relate to your prime subject was investing, I think you can get some interesting stuff. Yeah, two things for on the topic of reasoning by analogy. The first thing is how often in your interviews you say, you got to be careful about reasoning by analogy. So it's funny how often you preface your analogies with that. And my favorite analogy that you have is to me such a visual one. It's so vivid of the economy like a ball and then there's water spewing yes. up under it. Yeah. And that is one of the benefits of reasoning by analogy is that all of a sudden an abstract concept can be vivid. You can see it and then it becomes alive in a way it wasn't before. Yeah. Well, I think visually uh, and graphically and I think of these images which help me to distill my thoughts and then I think they're very helpful in explaining it to people. So in the ocean, there's a water spout and it's holding a ball up. And the water spout is a stimulative policy from the Fed. Right. And, it, and it, the ball is only gonna stay aloft as long as the Fed stimulates. So it's, it's not permanent. Another thing is uh, you have somebody who for some reason or other is, is buying a certain stock and that lifts the price. And people say, oh, I'm gonna get in on that. But you have to realize that when the person stops buying, the stock is gonna subside. So that when the water spout stops, and it helps you think about influences that are uh, temporal versus permanent. So it's just, a, it's just a picture. But, you know, I mean, uh, I think in graphs, I draw a lot of graphs. Um, uh, when, I was, when I was writing the Mastering the Market Cycle, uh, there's a discussion in there about the fact that I was lying in bed in Jaipur, India, and something made me think back to a discussion that I had in Shanghai a year or two earlier. And this, t and I, I, when I'm meeting with clients, I like to have a whiteboard there, and I drew things on the whiteboard. And this time, I was 21st century enough to actually take a picture. And I had the picture on my phone, I pulled out my phone, looked at it, and that became a chapter, or at least an idea, in Mastering the Market Cycle. I was meeting uh, uh, yesterday with somebody who happens to be a friend of the person I was meeting huh. with in Shanghai six years ago, and uh, I whipped it out and I showed her uh, the, the pictures of the charts I put on the wall in Shanghai mm -hmm. in 2016. So, uh, but, uh, you know, there's an old saying, by the way, the old sayings don't get to be old sayings for nothing. <laughs> and there's an old saying uh, which says that uh, one picture tells a thousand words. It's really true. And I tend to think in pictures and graphical relationships, which makes life easy. And it, I think it makes it easy for people to understand what I'm saying. What does Buffett do in his writing that you admire and 
struggle to emulate. I admire and strive to emulate his turn of phrase. Uh, you know, things like, you know, back in 09, uh, when the wheels were coming off the economy and the financial sector in the global financial crisis, uh, I think that's when he said it for the first time. He said, uh, it's only when the tide goes out that we find out who's been swimming naked. Right. What a great image. In other words, <laughs> there are lots of people, this goes back to the luck thing, there are lots of people who appear to have been skillful, but until they're tested by adverse circumstances, we don't know if it was really skill or just a bunch of good luck. But look how many words it takes me to say that, and he said it in 15. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and the other thing is he's funny. And I like to be funny. I like to make people laugh. You know, my dad told a lot of jokes when I was little, and, and it's a habit I got into. Uh, so I, I like to be funny. And uh, I think that his writing is uh, folksy and accessible, and I tr try to make mine accessible rather than standoffish. And that's why I'll, take a, I'll use a simple word instead of a sophisticated word, if I can, if, without diminishing the communication value. And uh, especially, I'll use uh, uh, conjunctions. One of the things I like about your letters, Buffett's, Bezos, is these little lessons that are crystallized. Like there's a great one from, I wanna say it's 2017 through 2019 in uh, Bezos's letter, where he talks about handstands and how if you're going to learn how to do a handstand, you have to just commit to doing it for multiple months. You can't expect right. that you're going to learn how to do it in 48 hours. Yeah. And that that's a really good analogy for building a business, for how we're thinking about things at Amazon. You know, sometimes it's just going to take some time and you got to sign up at the, at the beginning and say, I'm going to be patient here. And those lessons, I think, really inspire a lot of the credibility, a lot of the connection that readers have. Yeah, well, I mean, if, you're, if your real goal is to do something for your readers, then the test of what you have, whether you've accomplished your goal, is what you've helped them with. And clearly they're gonna be more helped if, if what you say embodies sophisticated concepts delivered to them in an accessible way. How do you feel that your writing has improved over the years? It has improved by getting better. I mean, I can't, I can't be more specific than that, you know? I, I think I think, you know, I'm clearer about what I want to do. But, you know, if I go back and read uh, the first memo in 1990, I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I may think I could have done better. By the way, I think it was only a page and a half. It uh, was, yeah. Uh, yeah, and now, you know, they're, now they're consistently about 12 pages. By the way, I don't aim for a certain length. They all seem to come out 12, 13, 14 pages. Uh, beyond that, I think they become laborious and... Uh, uh, I don't think you can deliver much, uh, much shorter than that. You know what your first sentence was in your first annual letter? I think it's interesting how you've been exploring this sentence, I think, for the last 24 years. We all seek investment performance, which is above average, but how to achieve it remains a major question. And that's one of the things that, having gone through your archive, there is such a consistency in the questions that you're asking year in and year out, year in and year out. And I've really come to appreciate the depths 
with which you can explore such a simple question about risk. Thank what does you. it mean to have something be mispriced, underpriced, year in and year out, that these questions are actually endless once you get into them? Thank you. You know, uh, I'm going to show this podcast to my uh, wife, who says they're, she says they're all the same. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I'm really pleased. Sometimes I'll go back and read an old one, not just for entertainment, but because I have a reason to research something. And I'm really pleased to say, you know, uh, this is the idea I have today. I had it 25 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, and what that convinces me is that it's solid. You know, if you had an idea 30 years ago, but then you never wrote about it again and you wrote or wrote something different in 25 and 20, and you would say, well, this is, a, you know, something that comes and goes. But I, I think that I, I, I think I've thought these things out in depth. And I, I think that they stand the test of time. And one of the tests of time is that I forget about having written them and I write them again. Right. Because I still believe them and because they still hold up. And the beauteous thing about writing as opposed to speaking is that in writing you can't BS because the reader is going to go back and read it again and say, hold it, wait a minute. And then it's going to read, oh, that's, that sounds good. Oh, I'm going to read that again. Then he reads through it. No, that doesn't follow. Rigor. Rigor. The foundation has not been laid or that the foundation isn't solid. And, and uh, that's where the logic comes in. What I do is not creative writing. It's not fine literature. I'm trying to uh, convey a point and for have somebody say, yeah, that makes sense. It has, to, it has to hook up. It has to connect. And the logic has to be established. The foundation has to be solid. And the explanation has to be clear. There's a line from Oliver Wendell Holmes, the Supreme Court Justice, early 20th century. He says, for the simplicity on this side of complexity, I wouldn't give you a fig. For the simplicity on the far side of complexity, I'd give you the entire world. Well, uh, you know, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's one of these topics that a lot has been written about because it deserves to be written. And um, uh, if you can make things clear, I think you've done something good and, and I think the reader will get something out of it. It's not just the depth of your production, but also the depth of your consumption. You know, with the most important thing, a lot of your memos, I see so many patterns repeat in terms of who, what writers you're really coming to deeply understand. Taleb with the influence of randomness, Galbraith with the futility of forecasting, Ellis, better to avoid losers than try for winners, Milken, hold survivors, but avoid defaults and bond investing. And that's the other thing. It's just plumbing the depths of a good idea and almost the power law of ideas themselves. And when you find one that's worthy of pursuing, to really study it and to let that idea become a part of you in a way that you don't come to appreciate if you're just skipping between books and different writers. Well, you know, look, it's an, it's an unacceptable conceit to think that nobody who went before you knew it better. And quotes and adages and books wouldn't remain popular over time if they, if they weren't substantial. And, and so, you know, I use a lot of quotes and adages and stories and uh, 
that kind of thing, you know, because there were smarter people than me in the past who said things more in a more substantial or maybe a clearer way than I can. So why not, why reinvent the, wo the wheel in an inferior way? Why not just go with the greats? You know, one of the ones that you don't mention, uh, <clears throat> perhaps my greatest uh, hero in terms of uh, uh, investment philosophy, and that I consider him to have been an investment philosopher, was Peter Bernstein. <laughs> not a well-known person, not a household name, but, uh, but a really smart person. Uh, Older, much older than me. Against the Gods. Against the Gods. Uh, Against the Gods was a really great book on uh, the history of probability. Uh, he wrote other books. But for a long time, long time, he wrote his own memos. He was really profound, extremely well-read, a little more erudite than me. But, um, you know, I, I have a great story in... And, and as you mentioned, that I returned to certain themes yeah. over time. So in 06, I wrote a memo called Risk. And uh, I think risk is the most important thing. There are three chapters on risk in the most important thing. At the beginning, too. At the beginning. And I wanted to write down everything I thought about risk. I think that the, the writing of the memo in 06 was really occasioned by uh, a way I developed of thinking about risk, which was different from the conventional way of thinking about risk that I had learned at Chicago back in the 60s. I finally cracked the puzzle in 06 about what was wrong with what I had learned and how to improve upon it. And you will recall there's a graph in here yeah. uh, of my approach. I'll, I won't go to describe it. I'll let people buy the book. So I wrote this memo, Risk. And then uh, by 2014, I had some more thoughts and I wrote a memo called Risk Revisited. And I now I said, now this includes everything that I know about risk. And then one day in my office, I got down finally to the bottom of a stack of papers, which I rarely do. And there at the bottom was a memo from Peter Bernstein. And it's and it the title was, Can We Reduce Risk to a Number? Because the idea of quantifying uh risk and using it as a numerical input to a formula, which people like to do because they like to get answers to questions, I don't think you can do. He didn't think you could do. And so he's got this whole memo about the nature of risk, which A is brilliant and B agrees with me. Those are the two important criteria. So I put out another memo. Uh, this was now 15 or 16 entitled Risk Revisited Again. And this was the first time I had ever done this, but I wrote it in the preface, I think. I said, you know, in, in, in betting on horses, they have a, something, there's something called past posting, which means trying to get a bet down after the race is over. Uh, past posting. I said, so I, I'm not going to try to do that uh, in a hidden way. I'm going to reissue Risk Revisited, I'm going to add stuff from Peter Bernstein's memo and other sources, but I'm going to put them in italics mm -hmm. so you know which is the new content. And I, I added a lot of stuff from Bernstein. Anyway, it's brilliant stuff. Uh, and, and, and he really had a great influence on my thinking because risk, everybody knows what, what it means to make money, 
Most people can do it. It's not that hard to do. It's especially easy to make money when the market goes up and the market goes up roughly eight years out of 10. So it's not a miracle. To me, the real accomplishment is making money with the risk under control. And that's what thinking about risk, I think, helps you do. So, you know, Bernstein's uh, writing is very important. Now, in October, November, I was thinking about a Peter Bernstein quote, which I use in presentations sometime. And all my important papers are at home in East Hampton, New York. So I had to wait until I got there to look for the source. I get there on Thanksgiving. I run to the uh, my uh, box is full of papers. I find the memo, can risk be reduced or not? It's not there. I was crestfallen uh, all night. I got up the next morning. I thought of some more places to look. There it was. And it was not from a memo. It was from a video that he did for McKinsey where I wrote out some of the key concepts and stuck it in that box. And then I looked a little further in the box and I found another memo on risk from a one. And so this is a, this is, this is a, a gradual accretion of wisdom uh, uh, by somebody that I've learned a great deal from. And he wrote beautifully. I always say that conversations are like an algorithm for randomness. Mm. They get you out of the maze of your mind. Yeah, but I think it's desirable to record what you said. You know, now some people probably go around with videographers recording everything they say. That's going, we can do this every day. That's going, we can do this every that's day. going a little too far. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. But, but uh, if your mind is engaged and you have the benefit of experience, and I got a great education from the combination of Wharton and Chicago, and then you know, 55 years of experience, maybe the things you say include uh, valuable elements that you never said before or thought of before. And it's, it's great to m memorialize those and use them when, when the time comes. I get so many questions about what should I write about? What should I write about? People think it is so complicated. And one way that I see it in your work is actually incredibly simple. That is trying to reconcile what you learned at Wharton that is qualitative and then what you've learned at University of Chicago, which is quantitative. And actually it's just in the reconciliation of two things that don't perfectly align that you're then trying to apply akin to the Yogi Berra quote that you were saying earlier. And actually it's just when you find a one incongruency amongst two things, trying to work that out, go like that. Yeah. That's so much of what writing can be. Well, well, writing about things that naturally go together is not that interesting. Reconciling two things that seem to be at odds that exist in the same marketplace, that's really challenging. But if you can do it in a satisfactory way that adds to the knowledge, that's really, uh, that's really uh, rewarding. Why do you think that you're the guy who figured this out, who figured out how to write these memos that really went viral? I mean, there's a lot of people who tried to do this. Why did you succeed so much? Why you? Well, first of all, I had a great education. And as you say, you know, if you read uh, uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, you learn about demographic luck, right time, right place. So I went to Wharton from 63 to 67. And at the time, Wharton was practical and qualitative. And then I, I went from straight from there to University of Chicago for an MBA. 
the so-called Chicago School of Investment Thought had been created mostly in the period 62 to 64, or published then, which means I was among the very first classes to be exposed to it. And this was entirely quantitative and theoretical. And how do you reconcile the two? And, uh, uh, and then, of course, to, to quote Yogi, how do you reconcile both of those with practice? Right. Very few people were exposed to both at the same at, at, at the time I was. Not maybe not too many of them thought about the juxtaposition. They said, "I just want to go out and get a job and start making money. I don't care about that thought crap." Right. You know. <laughs> uh, but I get I I'm in I'm attracted to uh, intellectual puzzles. I have intellectual curiosity, and I can't. You know, if the if if the Wharton says that the way you make money is by thinking about something and deciding whether to buy it, and then it goes up. And Chicago says, you can't beat the market because everybody already knows everything you know, and it's already reflected in the prices of security, so there's no such thing as finding a bargain. And then there are, you know, 100,000 people working in the investment management business trying to make money for themselves, hopefully by making money for their clients. How do you reconcile those three things? And only the challenging reconciliations are interesting. The easy reconciliations are not interesting. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I give a presentation called uh, The Human Side of Investing. The difference between theory and practice based on Yogi's quote, which I introduced with Yogi's quote. But the question is, you learn A, B, C in school, and you get out in the real world and you find that what's important is D and E. Does that mean ABC is irrelevant? Does that mean only D and E counts? What, how do you connect the two? One comment then, last question. I think that you've presented a great writing prompt, which is what doesn't make sense? What just doesn't make sense? And how do you reconcile two opposing worldviews that both on their own seem like they're coherent right. in total. Right. How do you square the two of those? Yeah, well, I think that all of your viewers who are interested in writing should realize that if they write what everybody always already knows, they're not going to have much of a career. If they reconcile things that are easily reconciled, it's not going to be that interesting. If it's dull, and humorless and uh, high-flown in terms of its verbiage. It's not going to be fun to read. So you have to make it interesting. But, you know, as, as you know, writing is incredibly rewarding. And uh, uh, it, 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 you don't need sophisticated equipment. You, you don't, there aren't expensive entry fees. I've been doing this for 35 years. I've been working for 55 years. I still think of new things. And I say to myself, I never thought of that before. And, and, and uh, you know, to me, that's what it's all about. And, and you can stay young and alive if you're still growing. But if you say, you know what, I know everything there is to be known, uh, you'll uh, ossify and you won't be that interesting. My final question 
I'm pretend I'm the chancellor at, at Wharton and I say, Howard, here's a, I'd like for you to teach a writing class and it's going to be called the most important thing. What is the most important thing about writing? It's like the book. The book has, is called The Most Important Thing. It has 21 <laughs> chapters, and each chapter says the most important thing is, and it's a different thing. There's no one important thing. Right. You know, and, and the reason I wrote the book and gave it that title is that I would find myself sitting in a client's office, and I would say the most important thing is to control risk. And then 10 minutes later, I would say the most important thing is to not lose money. And then I would say the most important thing is to know something that not everybody else knows. So what's that for writing? What are the chapter titles? Clarity, humor, uh, interesting topics, challenging the reader to learn something they didn't think of before. Because if, if somebody reads a book, uh, not a novel, but a, 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 a nonfiction book, and at the end says, well, that was well-written and convincing, but I knew all that stuff before I started. Or that that's really agrees with everything I already thought. Now, this is how we started the interview. Then they're not going to buy your next one. Uh, and uh, you, you haven't accomplished anything. So uh, what is your goal? What are your means to accomplish it? And I think those chapter headings and I'm sure I could think of some others. Those are the means to successful writing. Well, thanks for doing this. I really admire the career that you've built, the writing that you've done, and really cool to meet you today. The only thing I can tell you is it's been fun. Good. Thank you.